Hello, and welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and ancient Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. On this Resurrection Sunday, we take a breather from our new ongoing major study of the book of Daniel and have a special lesson which Doug is titled as The Resurrections of God. In this lesson, we will see the several resurrections that will occur in the future and all of us will be involved in this action. Doug very clearly gives us the information about these happenings. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 in the LaVorne Hall on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. We would invite you to visit and join our class if you are in the Dallas area. Well, Doug has gone to the podium, ready to begin today's lesson, so let's go into the classroom and find a seat. Here now is our longtime teacher and friend, Doug Brady. Today, we're going to celebrate the resurrections of God and His power to resurrect. But I want to start off talking about a little bit of a different subject. I want to talk about real estate. Uh, in fact, m most of you may not know that we have someone in our class who is quite a real estate entrepreneur. You probably know him as my favorite Amalekite. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if you purchase land, you have to have a written contract. And the buyer uh, has a number of things they want to agree to, and one of them would be earnest money deposit. What do you think the purpose is of an earnest money deposit. Anybody have a suggestion? It shows you how committed, Don. Well, let's, let's take an example. Let's say that you own some... Uh, I do. Yes, I know. <laughs> but let's say you own some, some uh, income-producing property, and it's worth, in your opinion, $52 million. Okay. And I come to you and I say... Don, I would like to buy that piece of property from you. And you say, well, I will sell it to you for $52 million. And I say, that's, that's fine. I agree to that. And we start working out what the contract's going to say. And then you say, well, Doug, what's going to be your earnest money deposit? How much are you going to deposit? And I say, oh, I was thinking about $500. <laughs> what does that tell you? Aha. So this, what if instead of $500, I told you, well, I'm thinking that my earnest money deposit is going to be $50 million. Would that change your opinion? Yeah. I would think so. That's something I want you to keep in mind because we're going to talk about an earnest money deposit today as we go forward. But before we go any farther and open our scriptures, I want us to pray. Father, as we come today to celebrate this very special day, the day that changed Earth's history, that changed my history and everybody else here in this room, the day that our salvation was confirmed 
because your son rose from the dead. I thank you, Father, for this wonderful gift that you have given to us and the glory of yourself and your son that you displayed to us by this event. I thank you that you've made this a singular event in the history of our world. Help us, Father, to be prepared to share that wonderful news with those who you bring across our path. Help me to teach today in a way that brings honor and glory to you. In your son's name I pray, amen. So, let's look at this resurrection in a second. I would suggest, and uh, I'm afraid somebody got a little lazy in preparing these slides. Uh, I would suggest you open your Bible to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, I know you're used to seeing it, and you'll pick it up, but I'm going to start in verse 1, and I'll probably read a little farther than verse 8. But uh, let's look at this, because there's a very important point I want you to see here. Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which you were saved... If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's, that's Peter, that's the Aramaic word or Hebrew word for rock, uh, where Peter is the Greek word for rock. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain alive until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that was his brother, and all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he also he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I have labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, uh, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is preached, that is, that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is also in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are all men most to be pitied. Now, he talks about the gospel over and over in that passage. And what is one of the things that he considers to be core in that gospel message? Resurrection. 
without resurrection, is there salvation? Is there really a gospel message if there is no salvation? I want you to see that, number one, Paul mentions witness after witness after witness who've seen Jesus after he was raised from the dead. You notice how he says about those 500, most of whom are still alive. In other words, you can check out the eyewitnesses yourself and know for certain what they're going to say. You don't have to listen just to me. And if those eyewitnesses were to say something else that, from what Paul was saying they would say, do you think this book would be in the Bible? No, it wouldn't. It would have completely destroyed the credibility of Paul and this book. He wouldn't have single-handedly been used by the Holy Spirit to turn Europe into a, a Christian area before Satan was able to win it back. And uh, I want you to see how this really works. Now, we're going to consider four key facts about the resurrection. Four key facts out of the gospel story that the resurrection establishes. You know, when I argue to a jury, usually there's disputes as to what certain facts are. And I tell them, what you need to look for is the undeniable facts. The facts that side cannot deny. These are four undeniable facts that we're going to look at today so that you can be certain of this, what this resurrection does. Number one, the number one fact we're going to show and understand as evidence is this, and that is that the resurrection completely and totally proves that Jesus lived a sinless life. Now, I want you to think about this a second. If you had to rely only on eyewitnesses to prove that Jesus lived a, sin, a sinless life, would that be difficult? And you know what? Oh, you find some people who've watched every moment of his life, know everything that he thought, everything that he said, and could there not also be people who were mistaken in what their beliefs of what he did was right or wrong? Certainly the Pharisees would test, oh yes, he breached the Sabbath. He's, he's clearly a sinner. Of course, he's the Lord of the Sabbath and that changes things. But anyway, but the fact that he rose from the dead means that he lived a sinless life. If he had sinned himself, he would not have been able to rise from the dead. If he is, why? Who? This is important. And it depends on where the Bible you read, not that it's contradictory. Who raised Jesus from the dead? Well, if you look, in some places you'll see the Father did, and in other places you'll see the Holy Spirit did. But in John chapter 10... I believe you will find that it says this, John 10, 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life. Now, can anybody in here choose to lay down their life? Sure. Everybody can. He said, because I choose to lay down my life so that I may take it up again. Is there anybody in this room who can take up their life again after they've laid it down? No, but Jesus could because he lived a completely sinless life. So he could be the perfect sacrifice for us and bear our sins. That's number one key fact I want you to see. Number two key fact, 
The fact that he raised himself from the dead means that he's the son of God. Only God can restore life. No one else can. Has there ever been an example of anyone else in the history of the world raising someone from the dead other than Jesus or a man who God is working through who tell you God did that? No. God's the only one who can do that. Now, there's going to come a time in the future, probably about three and a half years into the, into the event, when Satan's man's going to tell you that he rose from the dead. But it's going to be a trick. It's going to be false. You know, politicians, it seems, are good at those kind of things. And uh, they'll be even better when that time comes around because they're going to be empowered by Satan and they're going to have a lot of false wonders that they perform. But you're going to see that because he raised himself from the dead, he's the son of God. Yes. Uh, Luke chapter 23, verse 46, it says, When Jesus had cried with a loud voice, so he's getting an attention, he said, this is a red letter, Father, unto thy hands I commend my spirit. Right. Grabbed attention and made the announcement. And so he is giving his spirit, and we're going to read that verse in a little while, uh, because it's going to talk about something important to see. The third fact I want us to see is the fact that Jesus was resurrected, we will be resurrected. I want you to see that by looking in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. If you still have your Bibles open, you're just looking down in verse 20. Uh, and we're going to start there now. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, he's been saying if, what if, before. Now he's making it emphatic, so there's no question. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since, a man, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also Christ will be made alive. So in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. What is that saying? Each in his own order. There will be an order of resurrections. Do you see that? He's talking about resurrection of Christ. He said each in his own order. Uh, Christ, the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. And then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. Uh, when he has abolished all rule and all authority. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. This verse is, is full of meaning, and we don't have time to go into everything. But the first thing I want you to see is the very first part of that verse. Jesus Christ is the first fruits. That is like an earnest money deposit. The first payment the buyer makes to secure the purchase of a land. The earnest money deposit. Don? Using your real estate background, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead first, do you have an opinion upon the value of that earnest money deposit? Exactly. It completely and totally assures that you will be resurrected, that I will be resurrected, and everyone in here who is a believer will be resurrected at the time that Jesus is going to resurrect us. You will. And I've got something even better for you in just a second. 
as you're going to see. Uh, now, he uses this term, first fruits. It not only is like an earnest money deposit, it's something else. Let's go back to our example, Don. And let's say I didn't raise the earnest money deposit. It stayed at $500. Your response would be, I don't think you're very serious, Doug, and, and I'm not entering into a contract with you. And I said, wait a second, Don. I have a friend here with me. And he comes in, and the guy who is my friend happens to be Donald J. Trump. And he says, Don, go ahead and sign the contract. I'll personally guarantee it. Would that change your opinion of things? Yes. Well, a guarantee is no good if it's not in writing, is it? So you get the contract in writing. You get the personal guarantee in writing. Now that changes it, right? The concept of a first fruit is also a guarantee besides an earnest money deposit. You see, in the agricultural system of the Jewish people, the first fruit, every, every once, not every once in a while, every harvest there would be some of what you have planted that will come up early. And you look at that, and it comes up early, you can tell exactly the kind of harvest you're going to have. If what comes up is sickly and weak or, or, or meager, you're not going to have a very good harvest. If instead what comes up is strong and robust, you gather those together, and this was another thing that they did, and you would take those first fruits and you would go to the temple. And you would offer them as a sacrifice and a wave offering. And why? Because you say, well, what if that's all I'm going to get? No, you are trusting that if you give away your first fruits, you're going to get the rest. That God is going to make certain that you get the rest. So it, in effect, is also a guarantee. Jesus Christ's resurrection guarantees your resurrection. Now... I'm going to ask you a trick question. You know, lawyers love trick questions. My trick question is this. Will there be anybody in this room? No, let me rephrase that question. Could there be anybody in this room who is a believer, born-again believer, who won't get resurrected? Could there be anybody? All right, Don's no, but Steve, you're going yes. Well... What is, I know, that's true, <laughs> but, but let's see, sometimes stockbrokers hit on it. What are you going to say, Les? If the, to be resurrected, Don, you have to be dead, don't you? Could there be some people who are not going to die and yet meet Jesus in the rapture? I warned you about that. I tried to tell you that that's coming. No, I'm going to give that to you, Steve. There's no question about it. Now, you remember there's an order of resurrection that he talks about. He also uses this term first fruit because, of course, the Jewish society was an agricultural society. And God prescribed how they would harvest their crops. He said, you take the first fruits and you offer them to me. Then the second thing comes, the general harvest. But as they're harvesting, and they remember, they harvest by hand. If grain drops, you don't pick it up. 
If the fruit drops, you don't pick it up. You leave it there on the ground because behind you, poor people who don't have fields and who, who can't support themselves can follow after you and pick up what was dropped. Those are called gleanings. They can pick up the gleanings. In addition to that, as you finish your harvest, you can't harvest the corners of your property. Now, there was, in the Jewish society, big debate as to where the corners started. But you can't harvest the corners. After you leave the field, those same people can come then and harvest the corners themselves. Now, how do we know that? Look at Leviticus 19, verse 9. Now, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Now, that's the way he set it up. Now, it's important to see what's going on here. I want you to look at that last phrase for just a second. I am Yahweh, your Elohim. Why does he say that at the end? Well, most people say he says that because he's saying this is a command. I have the authority to say this, and I'm saying it. You need to know who's saying it to you. You better obey. That's not the only reason he's saying it. That is one reason. That is, in fact, the primary reason. But there's something else. If you give away part of your harvest like I'm instructing you to do. I will take care of you. That's the purpose of this. Just like giving the first fruits to him. Who's, if you give the first fruits to him, who's responsible for seeing that you get the rest of your harvest? Exactly, he is. He is the Lord of the harvest. He is responsible. Let's try to make a quick personal uh, application here. When you get paid, should you say, I'm going to wait to see what my needs are, and then at the end, I will give to God what I have left. God doesn't want leftovers. What does he want? He wants first fruits. Yes? Jesus paid it all. That's the down payment. He paid it all. It wasn't a down payment. Well, it is a guarantee. Not a hope, not I hope it will, or if I'm fortunate, No. If you meet the criteria. Now, could there be someone in this room, David, who won't be resurrected at the first resurrection? Yes. If you have never received Jesus as your Savior, you're going to be left behind and left out. He paid the price completely. No question about that. Now. Another side note on this. You talk about the gleanings and whatnot. And it just reminds me of this beautiful portion of the book of Ruth, which is a great book. It says, When she arose, Ruth, glean, Boaz commanded his men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves and reproach her not. So he, he just gave her full, full authority to take whatever she wanted. It was a message to her, yes. That's because she was real good looking. <laughs> I'm not going to dispute that at all. And we're not going to get off on that because I'll just end up getting in trouble on the way home. But the fact is that I want us to see is this. We need to understand when he says dying, what that means. And it's important for us to see this concept of death. Because did you know there are two types of death? There's spiritual death and there's physical death. 
when Eve ate that fruit, you mean the apple? No, I don't mean the apple. It doesn't tell us what fruit it is. That, when she ate that fruit, did she die? Yes, spiritually. She was separate, separated herself from God. Sin separates you from God, brings spiritual death. Did she also, did her body at that point then start to decay over time? Some of us are more aware of that decay than others in this room. But the fact is, we're going to die physically. What is physical death? We've talked about spiritual death. That's separation. Physical death is also separation. Uh, Physical death is the separation of the body from the soul and the spirit. Now let's look at the nature of man just a second as it's recorded in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, where Paul says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice three parts to a man, soul, spirit, and body. Many times the Jewish people would just speak of soul, uh, and that included spirit to them. Uh, that was part of the uh, spiritual part of man, the forever part of man as opposed to the physical, the body. Now, let's look at physical death with that. In Matthew, it talks about Jesus' death, uh, which we read a Luke passage close to this. And look what it says here in Matthew chapter 27, verse 50. And Jesus cries out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. What was physical death? It was the separation of Jesus' soul and spirit from his body. Another example of that is when they were stoning Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verse 59. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called out to the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out in a loud voice, Do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. He was separated. His soul and spirit were separated from his body. Now, I want you to see something. The first part, if death is separation, the first part of resurrection is reunion. The joining back together. I want you to think about this a second as we go through and, and come to see that this joining back together is what's going to happen, for example, in the rapture. It's going to happen in the last times. But there's another part to resurrection. Now, you need to listen to this because in a second I'm going to ask a trick question again. I'm glad to hear that. Now, resurrection doesn't just mean reunion. It also means upgrade. Now, has at this point in history there been anyone who's ever been resurrected from the dead? Whom? Well, Jesus won. Lazarus, you say? Anyone else? Let me put it to you this way before we go on in this mistake. There's only been one who's been resurrected. There's been another and others who've been resuscitated, brought back to life, but did their body receive an upgrade? Did they die after they were raised from the dead? Yes. Did Lazarus die? Did the boy die? The girl Jesus raised from the dead, did she die? Uh, The boy that uh, Elijah raised from the dead, did he die? Yes. He brought back to life. 
but he died, or she died afterwards. Jesus, after he was resurrected, will he ever die? After we're resurrected, will we ever die? You see, there's a difference in the bodies. Resurrection is a reunion of soul and spirit with the body, but it's also an upgrade or remaking of that body. Paul talks about that here in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want you to look at it just a second. Uh, starting verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. Uh, it is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It's sown as a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is any natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now notice, what analogy is he still using? Agricultural. You see that? Agricultural. Now let's look at this chart that I prepared so we kind of come to understand what's going on here. The first one is before resurrection, the body was perishable, right? Something that deteriorates and that deterioration leads to destruction or death. It, upon resurrection, is going to be imperishable. There's no deterioration, and therefore that body becomes perpetual. That's the first difference. The second difference, that body before resurrection was dishonorable. That is something that originated in dishonor and disgrace. When did that dishonor and that disgrace come? Another trick question here. When Eve ate the apple? No apple. Fruit. Did, when Eve ate the, apple, the fruit, did, is that when it came? You guys don't want to answer trick questions. Let me ask a different question. When Adam eats the fruit, did it come then? That's when it happened. That's when the dis were they, did they have a different body before? Yes. Now it was different. They died spiritually. And because of that, their body starts deteriorating. And it was disgraceful what they did to God. And so when you're sinning, it's also disgraceful what you're doing to God. Did Charles, you have a question? Sure. Uh, so did uh, a moment ago we said that when Eve ate the fruit, she, she died spiritually. Yes. So did she die spiritually before Adam or did Adam's failure? No, she died spiritually before Adam did because she sinned before Adam did. But when Adam sinned and died, you died too. He made the decision for his family, which is all human beings. Actually, the seed is coming from uh, Eve, Genesis 3.15. Her seed, the seed of the woman. All right, let's go on. The opposite, though, after, after resurrection, instead of dishonorable, is glorified. That is a, a body that brings honor and praise to the maker of that body. Before resurrection, we had weakness, a lack of strength, and full of infirmity. Some of us feel those infirmities more than others, but it all comes from sin. And that's where he came from. But on resurrection, we will have power. There will be power there. And in this power is speaking of dunamis is an internal power which enables one to do what they could not do before. For example, you look at Jesus. Could he walk through a room? even though the doors were closed and locked, yep. right through the walls, he could. 
That's number one. Number two, could he be somewhere and then all of a sudden just transport himself to another place? Remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? And then he was just gone, vanished. Now, the last one, the body before resurrection is natural, having a sensuous nature with its subjection to appetites and passions. Afterwards, we'll have a spiritual body being now subject to spiritual passions and spiritual appetites. No longer will we have to fight the old passions and the appetites anymore. Now, why is there a need for this new body? Our answer is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 50 and 51. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Now, let's ask another question here. How many resurrections will there be in the history of the world? How many? I'm hearing some mumbling, but I'm not hearing... I hear three. Anybody differ from three? Don, you're going to go four? Four? You sure? You're saying... All the, I'm going to know how many resurrections, though. And they won't all be the same. I'm going to say, Don is correct. Number one. No, not Don. Dawn, like the coming of the sun. I can understand. But we all know basically when you're wrong. So now, number one, resurrection, Jesus Christ, right? Number two, the second resurrection is spoken of at the rapture of the church. And I want you to see something here and understand what's going down. Why do we as believers need to be resurrected? Because our body is suffering a curse. Question, Gary. Yeah. The text that you gave earlier suggests three. It talks about the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of believers, and then we have the then, which follows. So it well, I think I'm going to get to it and give you some passages your mind. Well, but the text won't change my mind because it says three in that particular text. Well, yeah, but it was talking about three resurrections of believers. Oh, see, are unbelievers resurrected? We'll get to that. But first of all, let's look at this. Number one, there's a curse to your body. Do you remember what it said, what God said to Adam in Genesis after he'd sinned? He said, by the sweat of your face, you will eat your bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken. From dust you are and from dust you shall return. You see, your body is going to deteriorate. So when you die, your body deteriorates and it goes back to dust. Can God collect that dust, or let's say, can he collect those molecules or atoms and put them all together? He can. Is there any way you can destroy a body where he can't put it back together? No. But when you die, let's say I go out of here today and a terrorist shoots me and I die, what will happen to my soul and spirit? Yes, Julie will bury my body and says, now I'm free of that guy. <laughs> No, she won't say that. She loves me. But that's why she lets me kid her like this. But the, the fact is, uh, what will happen to my soul and spirit? 
I will be immediately in God's presence. The same place my father is, my mother, my sister. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 6-8, Therefore we are always confident knowing this, that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. But we are also confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. Amen. That is the promise. So we, we start to look at this. The third, that's the second res, uh, resurrection is going to be the rapture, when God takes his church out. But again, think, who gets raptured? No, the church, the bride of Christ. Does that mean there's some believers who aren't raptured? What about Moses? Not going to be raptured. The church. Now, the third resurrection is when the Old Testament saints are raptured, not raptured, but resurrected together with the tribulation martyrs, those who died during, and again, that tribulation is during which dip, dispensation? The dispensation of the Jews. Now, there is a fourth resurrection. It'll be at or about the time of the great white throne judgment. Who gets resurrected then? Unsaved millions. Billions. That's who's going to be resurrected. That's the fourth. Let's look at the passages. We all understand the first uh, resurrection, uh, which is spoken of, say, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 25. Look again at the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, 15, starting. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So what we're saying is there, those people who are still alive won't get resurrected. They'll get changed, they'll get upgraded, but they won't, they won't be dead, they'll be alive. For But those who have fallen asleep, those are the ones who are dead. We will not precede those who have fallen asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then, the, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the cloud in the air so that we can always be with the Lord. So that is the church in the second resurrection. Now we come to the third resurrection. It's spoken of, do you know which prophet gave us the information on the third resurrection, the, only, the first one in the Bible? Daniel, exactly right. In Daniel 12, 1 and 2, it says this, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, that is Israel, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, uh, your people, everyone who's found the name of the book will be rescued. What time period is he talking about there? Tribulation. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Two resurrections is talking about there. One of believers, one of unbelievers. That is mentioned again in Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. So when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered and He will separate 
them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will also say to those on his left, I'm not going to make any comments about the sides here, right and left. I'm just going to keep reading. I want you to know that. Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And certain of you, Julie has called this down on. No, but she does pray for those kinds of things. That is, we are tired, she and I, of seeing evil go unpunished. And we're asking him for that. Now, some people would say that's not very loving when they see Jesus coming back at the end of the tribulation. Love will not be the first word that comes into your mouth. Uh, but is this the only place that says it here? In Ma No, look in John 5. Very clear. Do not marvel at this. Jesus said, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Now, who's left out of this group? No one. Anybody still in the tomb are going to hear his voice. And he, will, and he will come forth. Everyone in the tombs will come forth. And those who did good to a resurrection of life. And those who committed the evil to a resurrection of judgment. Two resurrections. Two purposes. Finally, in Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 and 5, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the Word of God. How is the Antichrist's chosen method of death in the tribulation? Beheading. Uh, we have never seen that around lately, have we? Beheading. Uh, because of the word of the Lord and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received a mark on his forehead or on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Meaning, this is the first at the end times. And then that resurrection is going to occur, the fourth resurrection. Will they have a different body? Well, think about this a second. Don, how long would your body last in the lake of fire the way it's composed right now? Yes, if not sooner. So they're going to have a, a body that is going to last forever in that place of torment. Let's go on because I'm going to run out of time here if I'm not careful. I want to talk about a final benefit. We've talked about three key evidences up to now of of the resurrection. It proves that Jesus is sinless. It proves that uh, Jesus is the Son of God and it proves that He's going to resurrect you. There's one other thing, one other evidence, one other key fact I want you to see that comes from this. We're going to read all of Philippians 3, 7 through 14. The important part you will see is right in the middle. We'll talk about that a second and then we'll come back to the majority of this passage, starting in verse 7. Uh, you might want to open your Bibles to uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. 
But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all these things to be loss in favor of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. It may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own to derive from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it for, or have already become perfect or complete, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal, the prize of the upward calling of Christ. Now I want us to look for just a second at that middle passage. I want us to think about this because this is important. What does he say? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. This word may know, translated may know, is important to understand. Because if you look carefully in the Greek, it means to learn to know, to come to know, to get a knowledge of or perceive. It's also is used in the Jewish idiom for sexual intercourse. And it, it comes about being acquainted with. Any of those things, it's not an instantaneous thing. It's something that happens over a period of time. It's about a relationship. It's about intimacy. Does the Lord Jesus Christ want to be intimate with you? And does he want you to be intimate with him? Now, I want you to think about that last thing just a second. You could say, well, why do I need to be intimate with him? He knows everything about me there is to know. In fact, he probably knows things about me that I don't know about me. But he wants you to share them with him. You know, Julie and I just had an anniversary. We're going to be celebrating it in a, this next weekend. Would it have really been much of a relationship if when I married Julie, I told her, I love you. And Julie told me, I love you. And now we don't need to tell that to each other anymore because we've already told each other. <laughs> no, that doesn't work. That's not relationship. That may be contract. Contracts are not relationships, are they, Don? No, I, yeah. I'm glad that you answered that correctly. <laughs> so I want you to see that what we're talking about here is a relationship knowing, an experiential knowing. Now, what is he saying he's going to experientially know there in verse 10? That I may know him and, not only that, the power of his resurrection. Paul wants to know experientially the power of that resurrection. This word power again is dunamos, a power residing in a thing by virtue of its nature. That is, the power of Jesus and the Holy Spirit residing in your spirit that can provide you with this power. Now, some of us know it more than others. Some of us have experienced it. Others haven't. Some of us who have experienced have experienced it more than others. You may have seen it in someone else, but you haven't experienced it yourself. Is there anybody in here who would say, you know what, I really don't want to experience that kind of power. 
Anyone here so say that? I'm holding my hand up only as example, uh, not as an affirmation. But I want you to understand something here. Jesus, in resurrecting himself, displayed the great extent, the greatest extent. It's the ultimate evidence of his godhood. He says here, you can experientially know my power. That means you have to experience it to know it. Not intellectual knowledge. We're talking about experience. In fact, the goal of trusting in Jesus is enable him to know, enable you to know him experientially. You see, Paul gave up everything that was dear to him to be able to have access to this resurrection power. He made it clear to us that we can have access to this knowledge and power, but sacrifices will be necessary to know him and his power fully. What are we willing to sacrifice to know the Lord Jesus Christ fully and intimately and have this power channeled through us? Let me tell you, I, I read somebody today and he said, it's all the key is how sharp you sharpen the wedge. The wedge that is going to take you through Satan's defenses so that you can experience this power and that you can know him in this kind of intimate way. If you look at this passage, and I suggest that you may think I'm going to go over this passage here we read today from Philippians, because if you know Paul, I have a hard time thinking of a human being who has experienced Jesus and his power more than Paul. I, I just don't know anybody. And let me tell you, if I could experience, but here again, what is the cost? There was three keys Paul sets out in this passage that I want us to see before we finish. Three keys that I want you to see. Number one, in verses seven and eight, discerning what it was that hindered him. He narrowed the wedge by discerning what it was that hindered him. Paul had to let go of the things that he'd once cherished and even strove for. He came to consider them as distractions from grace. First question, are you willing to go to God and say, what is it that's holding me back? What is preventing me from narrowing my wedge? Number two, it's found in verses 9 through 11. Discovering what God really wants. Paul wanted God's righteousness. For as a Pharisee, he knew in his heart that, he, that his righteousness, his own righteousness, was insufficient. And Jesus Christ became his solitary pursuit. His solitary pursuit. He had to know what he wanted. Third, found in verses 12 through 14, determining how to get it. How do I get this? With a single-minded passion, he determined to forget the past and to wholeheartedly pursue the prize of his calling. Now, before we finish, I want you to think about two questions. Two questions and we'll be finished. Two questions I want you to consider, not just now, but the rest of today, just today, read this passage again. Consider these two questions. Is the same Holy Spirit that enabled Paul to accomplish his goal available to you? Yes. You're certain that's the answer. 
Because you're born again. If you're not born again, he's not available to you. But if you are born again, as I hope everybody in this room is, that Holy Spirit's available to you. Now, the key question. How would you answer this question? What are you pursuing in your life? What are you pursuing? What is most important to you that you are pursuing? And maybe to help you understand that, you should look, you should gather a little evidence. What evidence? Uh, I would suggest maybe your calendar, your checkbook, your to-do list, all of these things, which, where are you spending your time and your resources? What are you really pursuing? If your goal is to pursue him, it will show up in your personal evidence. If your something else shows up to be taking the lead, you're not pursuing him. And Paul would say, you will not experience his power. Do you want to experience his power? Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I pray that today you work in each of, his, each of our hearts as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. Help us to remember the power that comes from that and the power then that is made available to us, but also what comes along with that power, the fellowship of his sufferings, things we'll have to give up, things we'll lose, things we won't have, things that'll be difficult for us, just like it was for Daniel, Hananiah, and Mishael, and Azariah. Help us instead, Father, to be soul pursuers of you, to know you, to experience your power, and a willingness even to join that fellowship of suffering. I pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, the power of your Holy Spirit, and the shed blood that you shed for me and everyone else in here in the, on the cross. Amen.